2: Wait a minute,
0: this sounds like Rock and or Roll!
2: Hello, welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. More than 10 million people tuned in to watch the very last episode of Breaking Bad last Sunday night, September 29th. And spoiler alert, in the final moment of the final episode of Breaking Bad, they played Baby Blue by Badfinger. (laughs) That night, in the next few hours after the Breaking Bad finale, Baby Blue sold 5,300 downloads on iTunes and plays on Spotify spiked 9,000%. I had already been planning to devote an episode of the podcast to Badfinger in the future, and this just seemed like the perfect time to do it. Badfinger were the very first act signed by the Beatles to Apple Records when the Beatles started their own record label in 1968. The band the Beatles signed at the time was called the Ivies. They'd formed in 1966 in New South Wales, moved to London, and met up with a, ma- with a manager named Bill Collins. The original lineup of the Ivies was singer-guitar player Pete Ham, second guitar player Ron Griffiths, bass player Di Jenkins, and drummer Mike Gibbons. Eventually, Die quit, ...and was replaced by Tom Evans... ...who had been in a couple of bands around London... ...The In Between and Them Calderstones. Bill Collins um, knew Mal Evans... ...the Beatles' roadie and friend... ...and kept passing along the demos... ...the Ivies were recording to Mal Evans... ...and he liked them a lot... ...and he urged Peter Asher... ...who was A&R for Apple Records... ...to sign the band... ...and he also got John and Paul and George Harrison interested in the group and eventually they became the first band signed to apple records the ivies recorded a record for apple in 1968 with tony visconti producing and a single was released the first single released by the ivies on apple records in 1960 november of 1968 was a song written by tom evans called maybe tomorrow
3: Listen to a lonely sound, see the gray and sadness of
2: By the time the Ivy's record was completed, Apple Records was already in turmoil. The Beatles' Let It Be project was a disaster. In the middle of recording an album and making a documentary about the process, the band was basically breaking up, and both the film and the album were going to be shelved for an indeterminate amount of time. And the Ivy's record was shelved as well. It did not come out. Apparently, a few copies were pressed, and some made their way into the, into some European markets, but. Essentially, the album was not released. But Apple Records and the Beatles still wanted to work with the Ivies. But they did want to change the band's name, and everyone at Apple Records started brainstorming names, and they finally settled upon the name Badfinger, which was taken from a John Lennon work in progress, which was an instrumental track called Badfinger Boogie, which eventually became, with a little help from my friends, on Sgt. Pepper's. Paul McCartney at the time had been asked to record a soundtrack for a film called The Magic Christian being made from a book by Terry Southern, and he passed that project along to Badfinger. And Paul McCartney also gave the band Come and Get It, which would become their first hit single. Definitely not Paul McCartney's best work, in my opinion, and Pete Ham, almost every song Pete Ham wrote was far better, so... It's sad that the band is partially known for that song, which is really just a Paul McCartney toss off. The band did record an album called Magic Christian Music, which was released by Apple Records in 1969. And it's not a great album, in my opinion. Definitely my least favorite Badfinger record, without a doubt. I like
3: jokes could only show me what was wrong he took me flying on his crimson ship he never left me
2: his name badfinger served as george harrison's backup band for his first solo release All Things Must Pass basically playing on every song and then in July and August of 1970 they recorded their second album for Apple Records it was produced by Jeff Emrick and it would be called No Dice No Dice included an instant classic and the top 10 hit in both the US and the UK for the band, a song called No Matter What, written by Pete Ham. And even more notable, the album included a song which was a combination of two songs, one by Pete Ham and one by Tom Evans. They took the verse from Pete Ham's song, If It's Love.
3: Well, I can't forget this evening. And your face when you were leaving But I guess that's just the way the party goes You always smile, but in your eyes the sorrow shows Yes, it shows
2: And they paired that verse with the chorus from a Tom Evans demo called I Can't Live And the song that came out of that combination, Without You, would be a number one hit in the U.S. and the U.K. in 1972 when it was recorded by Harry Nilsson. ¶¶
3: Forget tomorrow when I think of all my sorrow I had you there, then I let you go and now it's only fair.
2: My personal favorite song on No Dice would have to be the very last song on the album, We're For the Dark, a perfect example of the genius of Pete Ham. What was also significant about the No Dice album was that guitar player Ron Griffiths had left the band and was replaced by a guitarist named Joey Molland who would really make his presence known on the band's next album, Straight Up. The album included another top ten hit for the band in the U.S. and the U.K. called Day After Day, and Baby Blue was also on Straight Up. Both of those songs were written by Pete Ham. Here's another Pete Ham song from Straight Up called Take It All. It's interesting to note that the version of Baby Blue from Straight Up that we heard at the top of the show was the version from the U.S. single, and the song was actually remixed by none other than Eddie Kramer for that U.S. single. I'd also like you to consider that all the music we've heard so far from Badfinger actually predates the Raspberries and Big Star, two bands that are most often cited as sort of pioneers of power pop. Well, Badfinger came first, and... The way I see it, Badfinger were doing everything the Raspberries and Big Star did, only they did it before them, and they don't get enough credit, in my opinion. Now, the band were riding high after Straight Up. They'd had top ten hits on both of their albums, No Dice and Straight Up, and very successful tours. They toured the U.S. multiple times to great success. They were critically acclaimed, but it was at this time that the band unfortunately, made ties with a manager-slash-promoter-slash-criminal named Stan Polly. And the band signed a lot of different contracts with Stan Polly and wound up signing almost all of their income over to this guy who really, in the end, stole all of the band's money and left them broke and without a record deal. And he really destroyed their career, this guy, and stole their money. Once this scumbag Stan Polly hooked up with the band, he immediately started to get them, try to get them away from Apple Records and get them a new record deal so he could steal all of their money instead of just some of it. So he ended up negotiating the band a deal with Warner Brothers Records, and Badfinger actually recorded one more album for Apple Records, which they ended up calling Ass, but when they were recording that album, they already knew that they were leaving the label and it was going to be their last album with Apple. In fact, the first song on the record, a song by Pete Ham, called Apple of My Eye, is actually sort of his goodbye to Apple Records.
3: Oh, I'm sorry, but it's time to move away Though inside my heart I really want to stay Believe the love we have is so sincere. You know the gift you have will always be. You're the apple of my eye, you're the apple of my heart. But now the time has come to part. Sorry, but it's time to make a stand Though we never meant to bite the loving hand And now the time has come to walk alone We were the children, now we own The apple of my heart But now the time has come to part
2: The eventual release of Ass was a mess. At first, Apple weren't going to put it out. And then at some point, Stan Polly decided he wanted to prevent Apple from putting it out. And when the album finally did come out, the band were already in the studio recording their debut album for Warner Brothers Records. And in the end, Ass and the first album for Warner Brothers were sort of out at the same time and really competing with each other. And neither album really had much of an impact at all that first album that the band recorded for warner brothers was actually supposed to be called for love or money but for some reason warders decided to leave the title off of the record unbeknownst to the band they thought it was called for love or money until it actually came out and it was just presented as a self-titled Badfinger album and apparently the band had zero input on the album cover as well So what actually happened was, Ass was released by Apple Records in the U.S. in November of 1973, and then the self-titled Warner Brothers album came out in February of 74, and then Ass was released by Apple in the U.K. in March of 74. It was just a mess. And meanwhile, the $100,000 advance that the Warner Brothers publishing arm had given to the to the band's organization that was supposed to be put in escrow and doled out as you know records were sold and songs were played on the radio, etc., that money disappeared. And Warner Brothers started asking Stan Polly where it was, and Stan Polly wouldn't give them a straight answer. And the record label was very suspicious, and they were right to be suspicious because Stan Polly was a criminal and he stole the money. In the meantime, Badfinger toured to support that first Warner Brothers album. They were always very well received. They were a great band, must have been awesome to see live. And then they went right back into the studio to record a second album for Warner Brothers. This album ended up being called Wish You Were Here. And the album actually came out in November of 1974. So. The first Warner Brothers album was February of 74. Second Warner Brothers album, Wish You Were Here, came out in November of 74. In between, the band were touring. I don't know where they found the time to write the songs, but Wish You Were Here is my favorite Badfinger album. And it contains probably my two favorite Badfinger songs, and they're both written by Pete Ham. The first song on the record, Just a Chance. And then probably my favorite Badfinger song, a song called Dennis, which... It's just a masterpiece, a brilliant work of songwriting. I don't know where Pete Ham found the time to write this song. When you listen to this song, there's four great songs in there. The song is just jam-packed with great melodies. It's an amazing piece of work. The song was actually written about Pete Ham's girlfriend's son. His name was Blair, but he named the song Dennis. He named it after Dennis the Menace, apparently.
3: Deeper waters flowed Recently it showed Trying to cover your head Trying to frighten you Trying to fight with you Really getting you scared But don't Time trying to find a way through falling down again on the ground again.
2: The quality of those two songs hasn't sufficiently blown your mind and convinced you that Pete Ham was one of the best songwriters we've ever seen in the history of rock and roll. Pete Ham had another incredible song on Wish You Were Here, a song called No One Knows, which I actually played on the very first episode of the podcast. But here is Pete Ham's actual home recording of the song, apparently right after you'd written it. Now, at this point, the band are being sued by Apple Records. They're about to be sued by Warner Brothers, and they're catching on. That Stan Polly is ripping them off. And yet they find themselves back in the studio recording another album for Warner Brothers. This album is actually being produced by Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise, who produced the first two Kiss albums. And the way they were connected to Badfinger was through Stan Polly, who apparently had stepped in to help them get paid by Casablanca and Neil Bogart for producing those first two Kiss albums. And even though the band have just recorded and released two albums in one year for Warner Brothers and toured the rest of the year, somehow Pete Ham has two more masterpieces to pull out for this new album to be called Head First, which would not be released until the year 2000, went unreleased at the time. One, two,
3: three, four. Need you need you need you
2: was clearly just a naturally gifted person. I have a feeling that these songs just came easily to him. They just flowed out of him. He just had it. Whatever it is, he had it. But it didn't matter at the time. The Wish You Were Here album was... The band were very proud of it. Many people consider it their best work, and yet it was only on the shelves for seven weeks before Warner Brothers pulled it off and were suing the band... That lawsuit was filed in December of 1974. February of 1975, the band's monthly salary checks from Stan Polly did not arrive, and then the March checks arrived but bounced. And meanwhile, Stan Polly is living in a mansion in Beverly Hills. Pete Ham's bank account is in the red. That album Head First, was rejected by the label, and the band's once incredibly promising career is a disaster has become a disaster, and Pete Ham is continually trying to call Stan Polly to find out where the money is. By this point, he knows that he's made a huge mistake ever trusting Stan Polly, ever signing any piece of paper that Stan Polly put in front of him. But you know, Pete Ham was a very innocent and probably a naive and trusting person, and. He was taken advantage of by this talentless scumbag who saw rock and roll as simply a means to make some money, to exploit the artistry and the gifts that these guys had and the music they made and the passion they put into it. And Stan Paul, a guy like Stan Polly was just all about greed and finding a way to get his hands on that money. And the record industry at the time is complicit in something like this because... You know the way it worked. You have to always have to have a middleman. There's always the middleman, and Stan Polly was the worst kind of middleman. And the record label worked with a guy like Stan Polly instead of working with the band. And you know the record labels were just looking at a way to get their hands on the money these guys earned as well. So the you know the record labels not a whole lot better than a guy like Stan Polly. They're pretty much playing it's the same game. And in the end, it all comes down to the. The songs that these guys wrote, that was the commodity. And, you know, what did Stan Polly or Warner Brothers have to do with it? But then it comes down to marketing and distribution and everything like that. But then you've got a scumbag like Stan Polly who figures out a way to stick himself in the middle. And because of the way the record industry worked, he was able to essentially steal the livelihood from these guys, the the people that had actually earned the money. In Dan Madavina's amazing book about the band, without you, the Tragic Story of Badfinger, which goes for about 200 bucks these days on eBay, he actually has a financial statement and this is from December 1970 to November of 1971. the band members were paid a salary of between six to eight, thousand dollars in that year while Stan Polly was paid $75,000 for his management commission. And that financial statement is from 1971 and only accounts for a small portion of the money that was actually being earned by the band through Apple, through Warner Brothers. And this is, these are just amounts that actually showed up on paperwork. There's no way to know how much other money Stan Polly was pocketing as he inserted it himself between the band and their income and kept it for himself. But we have a clear record from 1971 Of Stan Polly clearly ripping the band off big time. And it wasn't until four years later, April 23rd, 1975, that Pete Ham, drunk, despondent, and completely broke, hung himself in his garage. Like I said earlier, Pete Ham was one of the best songwriters that rock and roll has ever seen. And think about it. They were the first band signed by the Beatles to Apple Records when the label was just starting out. They had top ten hits from No Dice and Straight Up. And, you know, they seemed to be on the road to being superstars. And to just have it all fall apart and have nothing to show for it and that's the point where Pete Ham was was at that night, a suicide note was found that said, Ann, I love you. Blair, I love you. I will not be allowed to love and trust everybody. This is better. P.S. Stan Polly is a soulless bastard. I will take him with me. That note was discovered in one of his old notebooks, not the songwriting notebook that he was currently working with. Which seems to imply that it wasn't written that night. And, you know, what he did had been on his mind for a while. But I want to believe that that P.S., to me that means I will take him with me, he said about Stan Polly. I want to believe that Pete Ham, when he wrote that note, he was going to go kill Stan Polly. That's what I want to believe. And I wish that's what he had done. So obviously Pete Ham's death was the end of Badfinger, at least for a while. Joey Molland had formed a new band called Natural Gas, and they signed with a record label called Private Stock and released one LP, which was produced by Felix Papalardi. That album came out in May of 1976. (laughs) ¶¶ Tom Evans and Bob Jackson, who had replaced Joey Molland in Badfinger in the last days of the band and played on the Head First album, they went on to form a band called the Dodgers and signed with Island Records, and the band released three singles, the first of which, the B-side, Get To You, was written by Evans and Jackson and sung by Tom Evans.
3: If I could show you all
2: Tom Evans was unfortunately asked to leave the Dodgers before their full-length album, Love on the Rebound, was completed and released, and he ended up teaming back up with Joey Moland, and they reconvened Badfinger with an American drummer named Kenny Harkin, a guitar player named Joe Jansen, and they signed with Elektra Records and put out a new Badfinger album in March of 1979, which was called Airwaves. Obviously, they tried to modernize the sound of the band, and of course, without Pete Ham, it's not really Badfinger. The album was not a success, and Elektra dropped the band, but they kept going. They got a new record deal with a smaller label called Radio Records, and in 1981, they released another album called Say No More. (laughs) ¶¶ But the partnership between Molland and Evans did not last. There had been a lot of friction between Joey Molland and the rest of Badfinger at the end of his tenure in the band, and it resurfaced. And they broke up, and eventually, in the early 80s, there were actually two different versions of Badfinger on tour, which is a familiar story these days that we hear with bands like Great White and Queensreich, But back then, it was pretty odd. Um, Joey Molland and Tom Evans, each with their own version of Badfinger, But eventually Tom Evans got Bob Jackson and Mike Gibbons in his version of Badfinger. So it was actually three-fourths of the last incarnation of the band. It was just the band minus Pete Ham. Unfortunately, once again, the band found themselves getting ripped off and sued. And in November of 1983, Tom Evans hung himself in his backyard from a tree. A year earlier, in 1982, Tom Evans, Mike Gibbons, Bob Jackson, and a guitar player named Adam Allen had performed as Badfinger on a local television show in Milwaukee called Shock Horror Theater. And the band performed a song that Bob Jackson wrote for Pete Ham called I Won't Forget You. And it's a wonderful performance of the song with great harmonies. By Tom Evans and Bob Jackson I believe Both Pete Ham and Tom Evans could have lived comfortably for the rest of their lives just off of the income brought in by their song, Without You. It was the number four selling song of 1972, the Harry Nilsson version. And then in 1994, Mariah Carey took it to number three in the U.S. and number one in the U.K. And I read somewhere that the song brings... The income the song brings to the estate of Pete Ham is between eighty and $200,000 a year, and in the 90s, when Mariah Carey had a hit with it, it was half a million dollars a year. So they both committed suicide, and yet they both could have lived the rest of their lives just off of that one song. But rather than reward these talented artists, the record industry left them despondent, and broke, and they must have felt as if they had nowhere to turn, and I guess they couldn't grapple with the idea of everything that they felt they had lost, or the opportunities that they had missed. And it's also true that both Pete Ham and Tom Evans were drinking heavily and, you know, both of them were probably prone to bouts of depression and they were emotional people. But it makes me sick that a person like Stan Polly was able to maneuver his way thanks to the way the recording industry was set up with middlemen at every turn. He was able to Insert himself and redirect the income that should have gone to these talented artists. And it's just a terrible story. So I'm not going to end the podcast in my usual fashion. I'm just going to leave you with a song by Pete Ham from that self titled album that was supposed to be called For Love or Money. The first album the band recorded for Warner Brothers Records came out in early 1974. This is a song called Shine On.
3: Shine on, shine on me All I know is now I want you close to me I can't really tell you what the future's gonna be Just for now Me, something tells me that's the way it's gotta be. I can't really show you what the future's gonna be. Just for now, little lady, lean on me. To in love with love was maybe just a fantasy. And the promises we made could be insane. Don't think of tomorrow.
0: Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. (coughs)
2: Welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. Today's episode of the podcast is going to be devoted to one of my favorite unsung rock bands from the 70s, a band called Artful Dodger. And when I started doing this podcast, one of my great hopes was to get one of the guys from Artful Dodger to come on the show and tell the story of the band. And I pursued them, but I just wasn't able to make it happen. So I'm going to have to do this episode on my own. Artful Dodger formed as Brat in 1973 in Fairfax, Virginia, and the band was originally made up of singer Billy Palaselli, the two Garys on guitar, Gary Herwig and Gary Cox, a bass player named Rob Inglis, and drummer Steve Brigada. And Inglis left the band early on and was replaced by bass player Steve Cooper. As Brat, they put out their own single, in 1974 the band pressed their own single they called their label red rooster records and the single it was credited as the band was credited as brat on that original single and it featured two songs not quite right and how long will it take So Bratt pressed their own single in the hopes of securing a record contract, and as a part of that process, guitar player Gary Cox started looking at the backs of records that he liked, looking at the names credited on the backs of records that he liked, and he noticed that a management team, Lieber and Krebs, managed both the New York Dolls and Aerosmith. So he pursued Lieber and Krebs, he went to their offices in New York and managed to get through the door, get the single to the management team, and... They took the band on and ended up getting them a contract, a record contract with Columbia Records, and getting Jack Douglas, Aerosmith's producer, to produce the 1975 debut album by Artful Dodger. They had to change their name to Artful Dodger, because maybe because of the New York band, The Brats, or if there was another band called Brat. But they were convinced by the record company, I guess, to change the name, and they ended up changing the name to Artful Dodger. And their 1975 debut was a self-titled record, And it opened with a classic, absolute classic, by the band called Wayside. And this song is the one song that uh, people unfamiliar with the band still might know because it was on one of those Rhino DIY compilations of Power Pop that came out in the 90s. So that self-titled debut album by Artful Dodger, which came out in September of 75, produced by Jack Douglas, absolute 70s rock classic. Fits right in with the Cleveland sound that was going on in the 70s. Obviously, the Raspberries, or a band like Circus, who I played, I believe, on the very first episode of the podcast. It's just a great, great album, a must-have record for any fan of 70s rock. When it comes to Artful Dodger, the obvious comparison is going to be the faces, really just because of Billy Palaselli's voice, or Aerosmith because they had the same management team, record label, producer, but as you can hear, what, what Artful Dodger were doing for the most part was power pop, and when it comes to the 70s and power pop, all you ever hear is big star, big star, big star, big star, but obviously, a lot of the guys who would end up in the power pop bands a few years later, were listening to Artful Dodger in 1975. And Artful Dodger, had they did have more of a hard rock element to their sound than a band like Big Star. But there's a lot of what would become power pop in these songs, obviously, and they really did fit in with that Cleveland sound, and they were popular in Cleveland at the time. Now, Artful Dodger's second album which came out the next year, 1976. It's a record called Honor Among Thieves. It was credited to Jack Douglas as producing it again, but it was actually mostly produced, apparently, by Eddie Leonetti. And, in my opinion, Honor Among Thieves even better than The Debut, one of my favorite 70s rock albums. So that was the title track from Artful Dodger's second album from 1976 called Honor Among Thieves. Up next, you're going to hear my two favorite songs from that record. 70s rock doesn't get much better than this, in my opinion. These are two songs by Artful Dodger from Honor Among Thieves from 1976 called Not Enough and Keep Me Happy. His first two Artful Dodger records, they are on iTunes now. Who knows where the money goes, but obviously they couldn't come more highly recommended. Artful Dodger put out two more records, though, that have never been released on CD. They're not on iTunes. So, like a lot of great rock and roll from the 70s and 80s and earlier even, lost to history, really. Unless you'll dig up the vinyl. The third album by Artful Dodger, which came out in 77, also on Columbia, and also produced by Eddie Leonetti. Very different sounding record. Not even close to as good as the first two records, but still a really strong rock album from the 70s.
3: (laughs) ¶¶
2: you know at this point the band they had the backing of Lieber and Krebs Columbia Records Jack Douglas they toured for a while in 76 opening for kiss but they just weren't selling any records and you can hear on babes on broadway the third album that they're reaching they're reaching for a hit they're reaching for radio play they're they're too much in their in their own heads i think on the record or and they're they're trying to find a new sound or find a way The first two records were just really inspired, heartfelt, 70s rock, punchy stuff. The third album is just kind of overproduced and overwritten and just everything, I guess, they're thinking too much, I guess, on this record. And the production is just not very good. But there's still really great songs on the album. (laughs) So three records for Columbia Records, but it doesn't go anywhere. And the band's dropped by Columbia and second guitar player, Gary Cox, who was not a main songwriter. The main songwriters were always Billy palacelli and uh, the other guitarist, Gary Harrowig. But Gary Cox leaves the group with promises of a solo career. I, I think he planned on working with Jack Douglas, but then Jack Douglas had a falling out with Columbia Records, I think, or something like that. And The Gary Cox solo career that he had in mind just never materialized. And I guess the band was just in limbo for a while. But in 1980, three years later, they make a stunning comeback on a small label called Areola Records. They put out their fourth album. The record's called Rave On. It is the band's best album. Just an incredibly great record. Artful Dodger, Ravon, came out in 1980. If you can get your hands on a copy of it on vinyl, couldn't recommend it more. It's an amazing album. i love so much about the rave on record is you get some just amazing power pop songs like that first song you heard there she's just my baby and then you get just killer killer sounding 70s rock even though it's 1980 you get a song that would have sounded just killer on that second record from 76 you know half the album sounds just like that and half the album is just the highest quality power pop you're gonna hear like this next song come close to me (laughs) So as the story goes, when Ravon came out, it one of was one of the top radio station ads around the country. It was added to the most playlists around the country. Uh, airplay chart from August of 1980 shows the top three most played albums on radio across the country was the al- album Voices by Hall & Oates, Back in Black by ACDC, and Ravon by Artful Dodger. So it's a killer album. It's getting a lot of airplay and nothing sells nothing how can you explain it you tell me i don't know you put an album out as great as this it gets all over the radio nobody cares i don't know what to say So after Ravon went nowhere, the band, they finally called it a day, Billy Palaceli quit, the singer quit, and the band officially broke up in 1982. And that's the story of Artful Dodger. Great band, great songs, ahead of their time, Lieber and Krebs, Columbia Records, Jack Douglas, Opened for Kiss, Radio Station Airplay, popular in Cleveland and regionally, but they just couldn't maintain a career they you know they couldn't they couldn't make a living and they had to to call it a day the they did a reunion in cle they've done several reunions in Cleveland the first was in 91 and then between like 2005 and 2009 they played a bunch of reunion shows in Cleveland and Gary Cox passed away in 2012. So there you have it, Artful Dodger, first two albums on iTunes, next two albums, never released digitally, lost to history, including their best album, the fourth record, *Rave On* from 1980 on a small label, hard to find, but if you can get your hands on it, obviously from the songs you just heard, it's amazing, amazing record. And now, to play us out. What does that mean, to play us out? I don't know what that means, to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with Artful Dodger performing, they don't have a well-known song, but their most well-known song, Wayside, what would be considered the classic Artful Dodger song, the first song from the first album, a song called Wayside. This is the band performing it live in 1980 when they were promoting that album, Rave Until next time. <laughs>
0: achieve the American dream the big house the happy family the money 911 what's your emergency would you put in the hours would you take a big swing what's the
3: problem what's the problem
0: would you lie would you cheat
3: would they shop would they shop
0: would you kill
3: my mom and dead my mom and my
0: from airship